Blog Talk Radio. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called Good News, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It expounds on the central message of Christianity, that Jesus Christ lived and died to save sinners. Request your free book by writing to goodnews at gty.org. That's goodnews at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2020. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. It is because our God is faithful that we fully trust Him. He is faithful to His nature, faithful to His word, faithful to His promise. 
and never varies. In that faithfulness, we have found our rest and our security. Now, obviously, it comes to me today to speak to all of you who are listening with a view toward the current issues that all of us are very much aware of. And so I mentioned earlier in the week that I would like to pose the question this morning, and the question is, who's to blame for the riots? That's the question. And to answer that from the Scripture, from the Word of God. We're obviously living in very bizarre times that have produced massive fear and confusion. On top of that, our society is drowning in a sea of lies, lies about virtually everything, and lies on top of fear and confusion create an almost fatal insecurity and a devastating chaos. We have little confidence in believing what politicians say or what health officials say or what social activists say or what university professors say or what media says, or frankly, what religious leaders say, we have been lied to so constantly. And there is one to whom we can turn and always hear the truth. That is to the living God who has revealed Himself on the pages of Scripture. The one true living God. And Scripture says, let God be true and every man a liar. God is the God of truth. The Son of God is the way, the truth, and the life. Satan, the prince of this world, said Jesus in John 8.44 is a murderer and a liar. And the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one and is therefore bent on killing and lying. So we're in a time of chaos and lies. We have only one place to turn that we can trust, one who is faithful, and that is God in His Word. Jesus said in John 17 to the Father, Your Word is truth. Your Word is truth. So let's look at the truth and find out what the truth is about who's to blame for the riots. We can start in the book that I read to you earlier, the book of Isaiah, way back in the first chapter. 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ, God was confronting another nation, the nation of Israel, steeped in sin and transgression, having rejected their God and on the brink of judgment. And in chapter 1, the Lord speaks to Israel. In verse 2, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, 
They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. This is the desolation of a people that turn against God. In the fifth chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, there is a specific indictment among all of the sins that were part of Israel's rebellion against God. Here is one that substantially defines their true condition. Verse 20 of Isaiah 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Essentially, that's, that's the sin that signals the coming of judgment, turning truth and righteousness and virtue upside down. Israel was headed for a devastating divine judgment. They had turned against God. They had flipped truth and morality on its head. And in Isaiah 28:17, Isaiah says, "They found refuge in lies. They found refuge in lies." Isaiah 59, Isaiah says to them in verses three and four, "For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously, and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. This is where humanity in every generation and in every nation tends to lean toward the reality of the very things that were true of ancient Israel. Humanity leans in the direction of calling evil good and good evil, substituting darkness for light, light for darkness, substituting bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is the nature of all of us. To believe lies, to follow the father of lies, to overturn right and wrong, and the current situation in which we live is just another historic manifestation and picture of the perversion of humanity. So confusing. It's essential to keep harmless working people locked down at home, kept away from their jobs and businesses so they don't get the flu. But it's also essential, in fact more essential, to let people bent on doing harm run free in the cities, destroying the very places people earn their living. 
lock up the weak and the fearful and let the strong and violent run loose to create havoc. Call on all forces, grind the world to a halt to stop a virus, and then remove all restraint when a far more deadly virus sets out to destroy a whole nation. Demand justice when a man's life is taken, and then applaud lawless mobs of criminals attacking the police. Put the police in a position where they can't act to protect property, but rabble mobs are allowed to destroy it. You can't shop in a store, but you can loot it. You can't work, but you're free to steal. You can't attend church, but you can burn it down. You can't eat in a restaurant, but you can demolish it. Now we're seeing charges being brought in these riots, not against the rioters, but against the police. We see leaders who totally control the weak with fear of the flu, but can't control the strong because they're afraid. And by the way, if you worship the God of anger or the God of hate or the God of vengeance, you can have church anywhere, anytime, indoors or outdoors, without any rules. You're completely free to worship the God of mayhem. And the perverted solution to this is to abolish the police, those who are the protectors of the good and the punishers of those who do evil. What is wrong? What is wrong is exactly what is stated in Isaiah 5.20. Woe, that's a divine curse on those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What is wrong? Is it something environmental? Is it something educational? Is it something economic? Is it some kind of social inequity? What is wrong? How did we get here with everything upside down? How did we get so twisted? Criminals become heroes, and the real heroes are vilified because everything is upside down. We need the truth. The truth is in the Word of God. It's not my task nor my interest to give you any human opinion, mine or anybody else's, but you do need to hear from God. I want to help you to understand who is to blame. We'll start in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. Here we have a summation of human nature. This summation running down through verse 18 is basically drawn from the Old Testament. These are all statements made in the Old Testament, um, all of them except one from the Psalms and one from Isaiah. So God hasn't changed His moral standards nor His definition of humanity. There has been no improvement in the 700 years between Isaiah 
and the, the hundreds of years between the Psalms and the present situation that Paul addresses in Rome in the time of our Lord and after, there's no change. What was true of man in the ancient times was true of man in New Testament times. And here you have the foundational understanding that is essential to know what's wrong in the world. And summing it up, this is what the Scripture says. As it is written, and that means in the Old Testament, drawn from the Psalms and the book of Isaiah, here is a definition and description of the pathology of humanity. Four times the word none is used, and three times all is used. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a pathology that would make a sensible psychologist go get a job at a gas station. That's what you're dealing with? Lots of luck. There are three aspects to this. There is character, there's conversation, and there's conduct. Look at what it says about character. Here is the definition of character, none righteous, not even one. Is there no human goodness? Of course there's some human goodness. But righteousness, an acceptable goodness to God, no, not even one. There is relative human goodness. Not everybody is as bad as possible, but no one is righteous. No one is holy. No one but God. There's none righteous. No, not one. That's why you can't be saved by your works, because God's standard is be holy as I am holy. That's why you have to have an imputed righteousness that comes from God through Christ. You have to be given the righteousness of God to be acceptable to God, because there's none righteous. Not even one. Not even one human being other than our Lord. There is none who understands. Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says their minds are darkened. He even goes as far as to say that they are dead. They are blind. So they are in the unenviable situation of not being righteous and not even understanding the realities of righteousness, and then to make it worse, there is none who seeks for God. See, what about all the religion? All the false religions of the world are attempts to run from the true God. They're all satanic counterfeits, sending men in the opposite direction from God. Isaiah 53, verse 6, sums it up, all we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way. We're, we're like sheep in that we go astray. Sheep go astray by nature. Our nature sends us away from God. We flee from God. We flee in some 
noble effort to feel good about our fleeing, and so we invent false religion to accommodate our rebellion. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All, verse 12, have turned aside. Together they have become useless. The Hebrew equivalent is rancid, like sour milk. And sour milk is useless, good for nothing, rotten. Verse 12 adds, there's none who does good. There's not even one. That should be the first course, Psychology 101. That's humanity. None righteous, none understands, none seeks after God. All have turned aside. They're corrupt and rancid. None does true good acceptable to God. Some of man's character is bad, ignorant, rebellious, deviant, and useless. And that's the divine pathology. The Bible goes from character to conversation. Look at verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. You know, all of us are pretty conscious about bad breath. But in a graphic metaphor, the apostle sums up what was said back in Proverbs 10.32, the mouth of the wicked speaks perverseness evil. When they open their mouth, there is the stench of death. Like a filthy, putrid, open grave is their speech. Then he adds, with their tongues they keep deceiving. They keep deceiving. Uh, the term deceiving has as its root a word that means a fishhook. They lie in order to catch you for the kill. The poison of asps, snakes, is under their lips. Their words are venomous. And then it gets blatant. No more subtleties, no more sneaking poison, no more subtle hooks. It's now as blatant as it can be in verse 14. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Filthy, deceptive, poisonous, cursing, this is the mouth of humanity. And then the Bible talks about their conduct. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Humans are murderous. John 8:44. I quoted earlier, Satan is a murderer. He's the murderer, the archetypal prime murderer. And all his children are murderers, or would-be murderers. Over the last few months, I've had the opportunity to watch 30 hours of film from World War II. It was made in 1973, so there is an incredibly graphic news film. And then the addition of personal testimonies from the people who were there in the war. 
I ended up just with the final part of it, watching the final solution of Hitler, the elimination of the Jews. Thirty hours of that should be required of anybody who's going to have an understanding of humanity. Eighty-five million people were killed in about a five-year span. Eighty-five million people were killed, most of them civilians, at least 55 million of them. We would be appalled at that today. And yet I hear people saying black lives matter, and they do. God knows they do. They matter just as much as any other life. But if they matter so much, how is it that Planned Parenthood can support Black Lives Matter when there are a thousand little black lives being aborted every day? You want a holocaust? There's a holocaust. If you make a law that allows people to kill, they'll kill. Hitler allowed people to kill, they killed. Stalin allowed people to kill, they killed. Hirohito allowed people to kill, they killed. Supreme Court allows people to kill, they'll kill. Why? Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. You allow them to riot, they'll riot. Destruction is the word soon trima. It means to shatter something into pieces. Destruction, they become destructive. They destroy things. They create Calaparia, they create misery for people. Make laws or give license to people to kill, they'll kill. They'll kill. They'll line people up, shoot them in the head until they pile 20 feet deep in a hole, as we saw in Nazi Germany. They'll kill in what should be the most safe place for a baby in the mother's womb. That's the human heart. And Jesus went so far as to say, you may not actually murder, but if you hate somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. And so verse 17 says, the path of peace they have not known. Are you surprised at what's going on with this being the pathology of humankind? All you have to do is let them do it and they'll do it. All you have to do is pull off the restraints and this is what you're going to get. Because this is the natural expression of the un redeemed human heart. Everything from an argument between two people that ends up in a shooting to a war that results in the death of 85 million people is the product, the behavior of this kind of character. And the sum of it all, the force behind it, is stated in verse 18. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Behind all of this wretchedness is the driving reality. They don't fear God. They don't fear God. Proverbs 16.6 says, By the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. Mark it down. By the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. 
And that's why Proverbs 23:17 says, "Be in the fear of the Lord at all times." Where there is no fear of God, where there is no sense of transcendent and eternal culpability, guilt and punishment, you free humanity to be what they are. The greatest restraint is the fear of God. Our founding fathers in America knew that, even though they were deists and not genuine Christians. They knew that if they wrote a constitution that depended on people having moral behavior and doing good, they would have to, to attach it to God. And so they talked about God and one nation under God and given by God inalienable rights and somehow answerable to God because they knew apart from some fear of a divine being, the beast would be uncontrollable. Now, beyond the absence of the fear of God is the rejection of God. It's not just that they don't fear God. That's, that's a, a negative. They, they do more than that. They actually reject God. Go back to Romans 1. This is a very familiar passage. Paul is describing what is also true of man personally and collectively, the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what they do. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What truth? That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. There is planted in the heart of every human being the knowledge of God. How, how is that? How can they know anything about God? because there is a factor in every human being that leads them to the reality of God, and that is human reason. If you can reason that if you put gas in your car, it'll go, and if you don't, it won't, you're reasoning on a cause-and-effect basis. If you reason that if you go to work and do well, you'll make money, you're reasoning on a cause-and-effect basis. All reason is cause-and-effect. And if you look at the massive reality of the creation and you have any reason, you know there had to be a Creator. The effect screams for the reality of a cause. So you can know of God. Verse 20 says, the, the creation of the world demonstrates His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature, so clearly that you're without excuse if you don't believe in God. You reject God against reason, and then you rebel against God, compounding your situation. Verse 21 says, this is characteristic of humanity. They knew God, that is, they knew God existed, that's reason. They didn't honor Him as God or give thanks. They became empty in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, 
Four-footed animals, crawling creatures. That's what I was saying earlier. They reject the true God. Reason would lead them to the true God. Reason would define the true God in terms of His creation, what they know about His creation, and what they know about His law written in their hearts. They reject all of that. They run from the true God, and they run to false gods as a way to escape the true God. So what does God do in response? This is one of the most profound passages in the Bible. God gave them over, verse 24. That is a legal term, handed them over to punishment, handed them over to execution, handed them over to sentence. God gave them over, verse 26, God gave them over, verse 28, God gave them over. Three times God says, you're guilty of rejecting me, rebelling against me, I turn you over. To what? He gave them over, verse 24, first of all, to the lust of the hearts, to impurity, so their bodies would be dishonored among them. When God gives the people over, there's a sexual revolution. Immorality becomes acceptable. And you'll find a culture swimming in a septic tank of pornography. And when God gives them over, secondly, verse 26, He gives them over to degrading passions, and women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their persons the due penalty of their error. When God turns a society over because it has rejected Him, there will be, first of all, a sexual revolution followed by a homosexual revolution. And finally, the third phase in this judgment. God gave them over, verse 28, to a depraved mind, a mind that doesn't function. They can't think straight. That's when you have a political party that builds its party platform on killing infants in the womb, destroying the family, elevating homosexuality, transgender perversion, and they're proud about it. That's when you've become filled, verse 29, with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And though they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. They elect them to office. On top of the natural sinfulness is the added reality of divine judgment on those people who have rejected God and those nations who have rejected God. So the corruption is systemic. It is not social. It is systemic and it is personal and nobody escapes. It's not related to a lack of opportunity. It's not related to a lack of money. It's not related to a lack of privilege, a lack of education. Man naturally is a sinful beast who rejects God, rejects His law, rebels, does not fear God. We are all born with that internal wretchedness that corrupts and defiles, it scars beauty, it darkens wisdom, it defiles love, it robs purity, and it steals peace. 
2002, James Waller wrote a book called Becoming Evil, subtitled How Ordinary People Commit Genocide and Mass Killing. Interesting book. A reviewer said regarding the book, what is fascinating about Waller's study is that he challenges the common assumption that extraordinary evil must arise only from some abnormality within a people or society. Such a common view of extreme evil is a comfort to those of us who are normal, as it reassures us that we would never participate in such horrific events. We're not that bad. Yet what is so unsettling about Waller's study is that he shows extraordinary evil actually arises from ordinary people. In the massive killing of people throughout human history, we see how evil humans can be. Not just sins of pride and anger and hate and brutality and prejudice and deception and rebellion and vengeance and lawlessness, but there is a kind of lust in, in humanity that isn't satiated short of the most heinous of all acts. There's an adrenaline rush when you do evil and get away with it. It's part of your fallenness. Some sins come with a high. They come with a rush of emotion and energy. When you're free from restraint and you think you're going to escape the consequences. And the Word of God talks about that. It talks about the pleasures of sin. It talks about living in pleasure. There was a book written some years back. The title of it is Deliver Us from Evil. Really an amazing story. There are about 5,000 kidnappings a year in Mexico. The most famous kidnapping most likely occurred in 2002. Kidnapping of Ernestina Sodi and her actress sister, Laura Zapata. Laura was, for some reason, released in 16 days by the kidnappers, but Ernestine was held for ransom over three months. She endured unspeakable abuse, terror, torture, painful confinement, expecting at any moment to be killed. After the ransom was paid by another sister who was a well-known singer, she was freed and she wrote her story in Deliver Us from Evil, and it was translated from Spanish to English. This is what she said about her captors. And I'm quoting, Their wives, their girlfriends, and their mothers were afraid of them. Their children obey them without a word, and as far as their victims, we beg, we cry, we plead with them not to take our lives. She says the criminals can never change because their minds are warped. They are monsters. They are very sick people. At one point, they tell me they don't even care about the money anymore. The reason they keep doing this is that they can't live without the adrenaline rush that comes from doing something so dangerous. And they tell me that when they aren't involved in a kidnapping, they go out and bungee jump or go skydiving just so they can feel a little of the high that they have become used to. They tell me that sometimes they drive out to an open road where they dare each other to drive at speeds in excess of 100 miles an hour just for the adrenaline fix. That's in the human heart. It seeks the high 
that sin brings. Michael Stone wrote a book. He's a psychologist called The Anatomy of Evil. And he writes about 600 serial killers. One of them said this, and I quote him, There was nothing like the adrenaline rush of stabbing the throats of all those young girls. The adrenaline rush. And you thought there was some kind of guilt they had to overcome. There's something so base in the human heart that it can get to a point where that's what it seeks because that's where the fun really is. They find their pleasure in wickedness, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. Now let's go a little bit deeper. Turn to Mark chapter 7. We now understand something of the human heart. We understand that it has no fear of God and that it has rejected God. And thus God has turned humanity over to the consequence of that rejection so that they go down the path of sexual immorality, homosexual deviancy, and end up with a depraved mind where they can't sort out anything and they live for the pleasures of sin. Listen to what our Lord says in Mark seven fourteen. He called the crowd to Him. Again, He began saying to them, Listen to Me, all of you, and understand. Here's, here's the, the ultimate insight. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. The things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Did you hear that? You're not what you are because of something outside of you, but because of what is inside of you. That is the truth stated. Defilement is on the inside. Go down to verse 18. Are you so lacking in understanding? Are you this foolish that you don't know this? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it doesn't go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated? And Matthew actually uses the, the word for toilet. The problem is not something that's outside of you, that gets inside of you. The problem is what is inside of you coming out of you. Verse 20, he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, rather envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Here's the truth. You are not wicked because of what happened to you on the outside. You're wicked because of who you are on the inside. Something wrong with your heart, verse 21. Not the physical pump, but the inner self, including the mind, thought, attitude, motive, desire, source of all your thinking, because it's how you think that you act. This is a profound look at the condition of the human heart. For from within, ek tes cardias, out of the heart comes forth. And Mark includes 12 items. The first six are plural, 
And the second six are singular. The first six are acts, and the second six are attitudes. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, bad ideas, bad plans, bad designs, bad intentions, bad motives. James 1, sin conceives in the heart. Fornications, pornea, from what we get the word pornography, all kinds of deviant sexual sin, thefts, murders, adulteries, moikeia, sex of any kind that violates a marriage covenant, deeds of coveting, greediness, greediness behind so much sin. Was there ever a thief who wasn't greedy? Was there ever a rioter who looted that wasn't greedy? Wickedness, panerai, that is malicious evil. Evil that intends to act with malice that harms people. And then there's deceit, lying, sensuality, aselgeia. That, that essentially is lasciviousness, um, lewdness of behavior and speech. And then, much like coveting, comes envy. Envy leads to coveting. Literally, an evil eye. You look at something and you want it and you hate the person who has it. Slander, blasphemia, abusive, blasphemous speech, pride, feeling superior, foolishness, senselessness, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And you know who he's talking to? He's talking to the religious leaders in Israel. He's talking to the, the leaders back in chapter 7, verse 1, the Pharisees, the scribes. And they were talking about being clean. And they were criticizing Jesus because... Jesus didn't go through the washing of hands, the ceremonial washing of hands. And so our Lord is saying to them, your hands are clean, but your hearts are foul. As if you could do anything to please God by washing your hands. All your defilement comes from inside. Verse 23, all of it comes from within. You need a new heart. You need a new heart. So the truth of God is unmistakably clear about the problem of evil. All people are sinners. Without an exception, we know they're all sinners because everybody dies and the wages of sin is death. Not, our, not all are equally sinful, but all are bent in the same direction. And if you um, allow them to, they will run their wretchedness as far as you will let them. Some will stop just short of the line. Some will go over the line and have to be dealt with by force. But notice this. Crime will rise. Open, flagrant crime will rise at the same rate that you lessen the laws against evil. Tolerate homosexuality and you'll have a flood of it. Humans are dangerous. They're deadly dangerous. 
And the job of controlling them becomes harder and harder. And oh, by the way, crime also rises at the rate of technological advancement. Now we have a whole new kind of crime, cybercrime. Well, whatever you invent, man will criminalize. Now all that leads to a very important consideration. Since humanity is so deceitful and so depraved and so degenerate and so dangerous, so destructive, so deadly, how did God ever expect us to survive? Are we just a whole planet living out the Lord of the Flies? How did God expect us to, to get through this life with any measure of meaning and joy, fulfillment, value? How did God ever expect us to mitigate these sinful passions so that we could civilize, socialize, survive? Well, God put some restraints into human life. They are critical to civilization surviving. And where they are carefully and strongly maintained, life is good and people enjoy their life. When those restraints are assaulted, corrupted, diminished, or destroyed, life is very, very bad. Now there are basically four powerful restraints that God has put into human life. I want to just remind you of them as we close. One, conscience. Conscience. We know conscience exists because so many people are full of guilt, full of anxiety, full of fear, full of dread, have panic attacks. Why is that true? I don't think animals have that. I don't think there's any animal on the planet that deals with anxiety. Why is that? The answer comes in Romans chapter 2. At least that's, that's a definitive portion of Scripture, verse 11. There's no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That's those who haven't had the written law of God, the, the Scriptures. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And then verse 14, when Gentiles or nations, these are nations apart from Israel that didn't have the law of God, this is the natural world, when they do not have the law, but do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Part of being human is having the five senses, right? Well, there's another thing that we don't talk about, and that is the sense of right and wrong. The sense of right and wrong. Built into every human being is a moral reality. We know that. Why? Because the next verse says, they show the work of the law written in their heart because their conscience bears witness and their thoughts are alternately accusing or else defending them. This is a gift from God. You ought to be thankful for pain, right? Pain says, stop that or you're going to do some serious damage. 
Pain is a warning. Conscience is the same kind of mechanism. Conscience is not the law of God. It is not law. It is simply a trigger that basically acts to warn us that we are disobeying a law. Leads to fear, leads to guilt, leads to dread, leads to depression, leads to alcoholism, leads to drugs, leads to suicide if you don't ever deal with that anxiety and that guilt and that dread. And so, like some idiot who feels pain and keeps inflicting it and inflicting it and inflicting it till he finally destroys himself without remedy, so do sinners ride over the top of their conscience roughshod and allow themselves to be literally driven to death with guilt and fear. But how do you attack conscience? How can you have a, a society that doesn't seem to have a conscience? How do you do that? We talk about certain people that have done things that are unconscionable. And you say to yourself, doesn't their conscience rise up at some point? Doesn't the conscience of uh, norm, normal people say in uh, Europe in World War II say stop killing all these people? How do they sleep at night? Doesn't, doesn't it say something to them? Isn't it screaming at them? Isn't suicide sometimes, maybe more often than not, a, an effort to silence a screaming conscience? By the way, a failed effort because conscience will scream louder in eternal hell. So how does a person shut down conscience two ways? Misinform it. Conscience is not a law. Conscience is a mechanism. You can shut down pain, right? You can shut down pain. Just take drugs. Mask pain. If you mask pain, you mask the reality that you're doing some damage. You can mask conscience by misinforming it. How do you do that? You take the true law of God, which is written in Scripture and written in the human heart, and you basically eliminate it, denounce it, diminish it, remove it, and replace it with another law. And if you do this generationally, you'll eventually raise generations of people whose conscience is now informed by lies. This is what propaganda is. Propaganda is lies. And you see people, you say, well, how could they be so zealous? How can Islamic terrorists be so zealous? Don't they have a conscience? Their conscience is informed by whatever law they have come to believe. And if you believe all the lies that are thrown around about our society and all the issues, if you believe those, if you go to the university and they pound those into your mind with all of their ideological instruction, if you buy into all those lies, your conscience will cease to function because it will be misinformed. If you have a society that says, let's get rid of the Bible, that's the first step in having an entire generation of people misinformed about what's right and what's wrong. And now where are we? We're in Isaiah 5.20. Everything is upside down. Right is wrong and wrong is right. The other thing you can do to shut down the conscience is just think you shouldn't feel guilty. Let psychology take you off the hook. You shouldn't feel bad about yourself. You're wonderful. You're the best. You can be anything you want to be. You're heroic. You're, you're a good person. 
You ought to be able to do whatever you want. You live any way you want. Don't let anybody make you feel guilty for anything. Just keep driving all efforts against the normal work of the conscience and misinform the conscience, and you've turned the beast loose. This society in which we live today has been doing that damage for decades. For decades. Where is the conscience of these people? Where is the conscience of these who do damage? These who overturn everything? Oh, it's been informed. It's been informed with lies. And it's now controlled by lies. And it's been told again and again and again that it ought to feel good about itself. That every person is his own master. Master of his own fate. Every person is his own God. There is no God. You're God. You shouldn't feel guilty. Everybody should bow to you. And if that's not working, get drunk. Take drugs. The second restraint God has put into human society is the family. The family. Deuteronomy 6, God says, teach His law to your children. Ephesians chapter 6, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What is a family? Father and a mother in a union. Family is the divinely created institution for, listen to this, family is a is the divinely created institution for the formation of restrained sinners. Did you get that? Family is the divinely created institution for the formation of restrained sinners who by generations of morality, discipline, love, virtue, and obedience become a benefit to society, enjoy God's gifts, and are grateful. Let me say that again. Family is the divinely created institution for the formation of restrained sinners who by generations of morality, discipline, love, virtue, and obedience become a benefit to society, enjoy God's gifts, and are grateful. So, you want to trash a society? First, overturn morality so that the conscience is not informed any longer correctly. And then attack the conscience as an illegitimate source of guilt. And then go after the family. Go after the family. Have a feminist movement so that men are basically trashed. They lose any sense of respect or authority in the family. Then bring in divorce. Bring in abuse. Bring in immorality. Bring in homosexuality. Bring in gender confusion. Anything and everything. Every possible way you can think of it. Destroy the family. And you have just shattered the divinely created institution for the formation of restrained sinners. So, when any society has most of its children being born without a mother and a father married in the home, when any society has several generations of people who have rejected God and His Word and have been regularly, systematically misinformed about the truth and about righteousness, and when the residual realities of the law of God in the human heart are scorned and rejected, 
And when they have experienced no acceptable love and discipline and direction in a stable home, you have just removed two monumental restraints from society. What's happening in our culture these days? It's not because somebody died in Minneapolis. It is far bigger than that. The Bible says, spare the rod, you spoil the child. Conscience has to be a threat to immoral behavior. Parents have to be a threat to unruly, disobedient behavior. Without that, society's on the way to absolute mayhem in the streets. There's a third provision that God has made, and it's government. So we talked about personal authority in the conscience, parental authority in the family. Government is the social authority. The prime role of government is not material welfare. That is not the prime role of government. The prime role of government, according to Paul in Romans 13, as he speaks on behalf of the Lord Himself who designed government, Romans 13, very, very important portion of Scripture. Verse 1, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. No authority may be perfect, but every authority is ordained by God. No family is necessarily perfect, no father or mother, but they are ordained by God. No one's knowledge of the law of God or conscience is necessarily perfect, but they are designed by God, even with a measure of imperfection, to restrain this beast. So verse 2, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. What you're seeing in the streets is people opposing God. I don't care what their ideological issues are. I don't care what it is that they think is unfair or unjust. They are flying around opposing the authority that God has ordained, and they are opposing God. And by the way, they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. God keeps accounts. You don't get away with it. Rulers, says verse 3, are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Things happen in arrests. Things happen conflict with the police. You don't need to fear them if you maintain good behavior. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from them. Listen to this. For government, police, and even in some cases, soldiers, they're a minister of God to you for good. Basically, only two people in the New Testament are said to be ministers, pastors and policemen. They're a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. Yeah, you should be afraid. For it, it, government does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Look, we, we've got a society basically where the conscience is misinformed. 
We've got a society basically where people have quieted their own conscience by deciding that they're better than their conscience says they are. We've got a society of people raised without the discipline, the love, the stability of a home. And now they're running around in this country in all directions, and it's left to the police to try to make some sanity out of this chaos. These are people that have evil hearts to the core. We all do. But they haven't been restrained by the gospel, the transforming power of Christ. Now we're seeing what is going to happen because God ordained government. Resistance to authority is rebellion against God, not only government. Resistance should be, must be punished. And when it is punished, they are doing the work of God. This is the duty of, this is why there's a justice system. This is why it's so horrendous when we don't trust the FBI. We don't trust the Justice Department. We, we don't trust the people who have that power. If society destroys the, the law of God, takes the Bible out, mocks it, makes it illegal, in the schools, if society does everything it can to silence the conscience, then society does everything it can possibly do to destroy real marriage, family, children, make spanking children some kind of abuse. And then society's got one more step to go. Defund the police. Destroy the respect for authority. The defunding follows the destruction of respect. Then you do have the Lord of the Flies. Well, what you're seeing these days is what it would look like and could look like if this rebellion continued to diminish those who keep order, protecting good people and punishing those who do evil. We're watching that being assaulted massively, more than I've ever seen in my years. There's one more. There's one more restraint. That's the church. And just saying that, I feel a pain in my heart. Because a lot of these people that are riding in the streets are riding right in front of churches. A lot of churches in the communities of all these major cities, what have they been saying? It's more likely that some of the people in those churches would be joining them than trying to stop them. But the church, critical. The last stand. Go to Matthew 5, 13. The conscience is a personal authority, the family is a parental authority, the government is a social authority, and the church is a spiritual authority. 
Uh, I just read verses 13 to 16, Matthew 5. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We, we aren't just an isolated group in a closed-up building. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. You, emphatic and plural. You, he's talking to his disciples. Here is the presupposition. The world is decaying. The world is corrupt. And the world is dark. And those who follow Christ are to be salt that slows the decay and light that diminishes the darkness. Let's talk about salt. That's the only rock you eat, by the way, which is probably good. Sodium chloride compound. Salt has been a critical factor in the development of civilization. I don't know if you know that. If you want to read an interesting book, read the book called Salt, A History. Really, it's a history of the world. That book fascinated me. Salt has been a critical factor in the development of civilization because of its preservative powers. Salt eliminated dependence on seasonal food and fresh food, made it possible to preserve food and therefore to transport food, pivotal to trade, and trade is pivotal to civilization. Salt was once so difficult to obtain that it was highly valued, and many different cultures in ancient times used it as currency. It is said that the first town in Europe going back 5,000 years before Christ, is a town, Solnitsata. I think it's in Bulgaria today. That means salt works. The earliest town in Europe built around a salt production facility. Salt was of immense value to the Jews and the Greeks and the Tamils and the Chinese and the Hittites. In fact, the word salary comes from the Latin salt. Because people were paid in salt. And if somebody wasn't a very good employee, you would say, hey, he's not worth his salt. For the Romans, salt was more valuable than gold. There were caravans, we read, of 40,000 camels traversing the Sahara Desert to bring salt to markets. Because salt was such critical preservative it slowed down corruption. In fact, salt pretty much determined the location of the world's greatest cities. Salt created and destroyed empires. Salt caused population shifts. All this because of its power to preserve from corruption. 
And like salt, the presence of the children of God, disciples of Christ, Christian believers, the church, slows down the decay and corruption of society. We're the most precious commodity this world has. But let's open the bars and keep the churches closed. The influence of goodness, the influence of virtue, the influence of humility, the influence of unselfishness, the influence of kindness, the influence of compassion, mercy, the influence of love, and more importantly, the influence of holiness and godliness restrains the corruption. That's why Peter says, we are a holy people. You are the salt of the earth. You preserve. You're the final restraining power. All over the world, the church is being attacked, isn't it? Pastors are being killed. Churches are being shut down, destroyed. As society catapults into the black hole of anti-God oblivion. Now, you are the salt of the earth, but here's a warning. If the salt has become, and the word in the Greek is morino, from which we actually get the word moron, a moron is a non-functioning human being, somebody who can't think right. So if the salt can't function, if the salt has lost its ability to preserve, like much salt that lies on the shores around the Dead Sea, which is full of salt, you actually can lay on the top of it and float, but that salt becomes corrupted and polluted. When salt loses its ability to preserve, it is because it has lost its purity. Its purity. And this is why I say this is a sad thing for me because church after church after church after church is not salting the culture with godliness. False teachers abound, charlatans with religious Ponzi schemes, taking money from poor people on the promise of miracles and wealth. Pastors whose lives are unholy and immoral. Entertainment centers trying to make sinners feel good about themselves. Denying, in many cases, whole denominations, denying the veracity of Scripture, denying the deity of Christ, denying the gospel. Popular megachurches just entertaining sinners. Little concern for holiness, godliness, virtue, righteousness. It's not their message. They don't confront sin, they don't call for holy living. That would empty the place. So we have to say that Satan's done some serious damage to the conscience, to the family, to the government, and to the church. Salt works indirectly. Salt works secretly. So does godliness and so does righteousness. Light, on the other hand, works openly. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor does anyone light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the shining light of good works. There's a subtle secret influence of righteousness, and there's an open exemplary aspect of righteousness. The last restraint, placed in society, the church. But when so-called Christians live sinful lives, try to entertain people, rather than live godly lives openly in front of people, there is no restraint. Who's to blame for the riots? Who's to blame? Sinners, all of them, everybody, all of us. Families who failed to raise virtuous, disciplined children in loving marriages. Weak government leaders who failed to protect the good, punish those who do evil. And false churches, not full of godly people with transformed hearts, living righteous lives. So what's the answer? How do we fix this? Well, restore the law of God so the conscience can be informed. Restore the family so restrained children can be the next generation. Restore the government to its role of true justice and restore the church. Is it going to happen? We pray, don't we? I know one thing is going to happen. The Bible says, and I can't speak for this country or for this moment, but eventually we have to face the reality that's going to get worse until the Redeemer comes and makes it all right. And He will come. He will arise. And we can maybe end where we began. I'll just read this to you. A Redeemer will come to Zion. Arise, shine. Your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has arisen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. He's coming. But before He comes, we're going to be taken out. And when we're taken out, Paul says the restrainer is gone. And a period of time called the Great Tribulation, all hell breaks loose, described in Revelation 6 through 19, at the end of which the Lord returns, sets up his own kingdom. Sad times, and yet if we take the steps of restoration, Sometimes in the past, God has allowed such revivals, such times of restoration. We go back to the Word of God, back to ordered families, back to just government, back to sound, faithful, godly churches. It can change. Apart from that, it grows worse until we are taken to the final restraint and judgment falls and Christ will then come Bring that judgment to its end 
and establish His glorious kingdom. By the way, we'll come back with Him. Amen? In that kingdom. Father, we thank You for Your truth. We need the truth. Thank You that You've laid it out in Your ancient Word. Ancient and yet alive. Thank You for giving us the truth. May You be merciful and gracious to us. Restore Your Word. Starting with us, the faithful preachers and teachers and churches, and may it spread across this land and around the world. To Your glory we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University, where John serves as Chancellor, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, stand up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing. And forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? Surprise, no surprise, I'm back in your section With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection More power than gravity, his knowledge and strategies Confound the academy, bow to his majesty He paid sin's salary, took up blame on Calvary Those who love his name, spread his fame is the policy All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice That's prize, I'm after Christ and rise in the afterlife What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes who hate Truth, the gospel is not fake news. I get a sin, the gospel sweeter than it's ever been. Ain't nothing changed, let us sin, we got the medicine. It's still human emergency, the serpent attack. You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? is the king, so his people we will sing, and forever say worthy is the land, what's up? Stop and listen to my composition, lots of rhythm but not traditional, kind of different, but God's consistent, no contradiction, my proposition, through crucifixion, he mocked and crippled his opposition, it's not some fiction, I'm spitting, the son of God is risen, and my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven, Jesus came to unlock the prison, and through the spirit, he brings a new birth like an obstetrician, at times I listen, a lot of Christian hip-hop is missing, the proper vision, it's my suspicion, we drop the mission, not to this, but the word of God, is it not sufficient, the doctrine is that the gospel fix is our shot condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness that God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people here.
say worthy is the land. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music. But we gon' celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop. I peep myself. They say we too redundant. Well, let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again, he came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again, nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again, fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus? When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Then, up, hands up, if you truly love the Son of Man, trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land, what's up, stand up, hands up, does anybody love the Son of Man, trust, Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land, what's up. Are there contradictions in the Bible? This is Ken Ham, author and speaker on Genesis and all of the Bible's reliability. Has someone ever told you they couldn't trust the Bible because it's full of contradictions? Many Christians don't know how to answer, but here's one way. Ask them to name a contradiction. You'll find most people can't. They're just repeating what they've heard. Now, sometimes people will give an alleged contradiction, but it's usually just something that sounds illogical to them. Something illogical isn't a contradiction. Contradictions only happen when two opposing statements are both presented as truth in the same way. There are no contradictions in the Bible. The examples given are usually easily explained by just looking at the context. We'll talk more about this next week. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. In Matthew 5.3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is that what Jesus said, blessed are the poor? No, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. But you probably hear it the other way more often than you hear it the right way. The poor in spirit are those who know they need God's help. To those who confess their spiritual bankruptcy to God, they will receive the kingdom of God. So this is not about anyone who is poor. It's talking about a person who humbly acknowledges they need Jesus. At the start of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3 through 12, is a section referred to as the Beatitudes. These are the verses that begin, Blessed are. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. Matthew was originally written in Greek, and the Greek word for blessed is makarioi, which means happy. This describes a believer who is happy because he is fortunate, approved of by God, and provided for. Blessing is connected to faith, for as Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. The one who is loved by the Father through faith in the Son is blessed. Many people say the Beatitudes are about the marginalized. No, the Beatitudes are about the followers of Jesus. 
poor in spirit, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. These are the children of God when we understand the text. That is when we understand the text. Also know what? It's WWDT. It's on YouTube, WWDT. And then also WWTT.com. And now here is Fruit of Spirit. Ready? Okay! the Bible's not true? This is Ken Ham, co-author of the book on Noah's Flood, A Flood of Evidence. I've had people tell me that because there are miracles in the Bible, it's obviously not true. Just the stuff of legends, they say, but this is circular reasoning. It assumes miracles aren't true and therefore assumes the miracles in the Bible aren't true. 
But the Bible describes God as all-powerful. He's clearly able to do miracles. It's not hard for him to divide the Red Sea, feed 5,000, or raise Lazarus from the dead. God doesn't normally do miracles. That's why they're miraculous. They go outside how God normally sustains this fallen creation. But what was God's greatest miracle? Raising Jesus from the dead so we could have eternal life. Discover more about the truth of God's Word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or share it with others when you go to AnswersRadio.com. That is always going to be a component inside of your depression. Why? Because every bout of depression is a question about God. It is a question about what you're thinking about Him, what your theology is in practice. Are you believing God? Are you trusting God? Are you applying His truths to your lies? Depression is always theological. Let me just give one example. You are feeling heavy because there is somebody who is just causing you grief. They are just at you. It's a bully. Maybe it is somebody who really wounded you in the past. How is that theological? How's about Jesus' promise in John 14 through 16 where he gives 10 anxiety relievers when he says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to judge your enemies. I'm going to deal with the person who hurts you and I am going to grind them to powder. God will be the one who displays his justice and his righteousness by dealing with the bad people who hurt you, sinned against him most certainly, but hurt one of his children, he is going to find them, he is going to bring them to trial, he is going to sentence them, and he is going to punish them because they sin primarily against him, but also against you. What does that punishment look like? Well, it's just eternal conscious torment. Well, they will weep, they will gnash their teeth, they will be in a forever free fall. It is always dark, there's no hope, there's no light, there's no joy, there's no delighting in God and anything that is good. That's what's going to happen to the person who hurts you. Now, that theology can help you to not desire to seek vengeance, and it can cause you to not be so depressed. Perhaps you're bummed because just this guy got away with it. This woman who hurt me, she's just never going to be dealt with. Oh, yes, she is. Oh, yes, he is. And knowing the severity and the thoroughness of God's judgment and justice on that person will move you from being depressed, sad, blue about it, to actually being able to forgive them and even be concerned for them. Is that an overnight sort of affair? No, and that is silly counseling. Anybody who tells you, hey, I got a Bible verse, it's just going to fix you up. Nah, that's, that's just not practical Christianity. It is a process, but rightly applying theology progressively over time it will align your wrong thinking with god's right thinking because every single issue of depression every bout is a theological issue that is from wretched that's from the youtube page w-r-e-t-c-g-d wretched and also they have a website Wretched.org, and you can find this is from their TV show, 
And also, um, they have a radio show in a podcast. Uh, they're both called Wretches, so check that out. And next, we will go to how to share Jesus with the younger generation. I do think there's an afterlife. Do you think about it much? I don't. I don't think about it much. I guess only when I'm asked or when the topic comes up. So why don't you think about it? I mean, the biggest event in your life will be your death. There's nothing bigger. It's bigger than your wedding day. Are you afraid of dying? Uh, I don't think I'm afraid of dying. I'm only afraid of the way that I'm going to die. Do you believe in God's existence? I do believe in God, yes. Do you think he would give us an answer to death? Mm -hmm. It seems pretty horrible that God created us and we have puppies and kittens and summer and spring and flowers and love and laughter and friendship and all these wonderful things, and then death comes along. And it's so unnatural and so horrible, nobody in his right mind wants to die. Why do you think God gave us death? Is there some reason for it? It's a very good question. Question. I guess I never thought about that. Um, I mean, no one wants to live forever. I do. You do? Oh, yes. I mean, your life must be wonderful. <laughs> so you've got a death wish? I mean... Emma, if you had cancer, you would cry. You would weep and tears and say, oh, God, I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to live. I love my family. I love my puppy. I love the blue sky and the flowers and the birds. See, have you heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt? Ever heard that? Uh, I haven't heard of that. It means... I mean, you going back to the topic of that I would probably cry. I think everyone uh, takes news um, different way. Um, I don't think I would cry and sob and, like, oh, you know, like, mm, I mean, I'm not going to say I would be happy about it. I would just take it my own way and, you know, live life, you know? Go crazy, you know, go to Vegas, travel, you know, because... At the end of the day, like you said, we're all going to die, so why not live your life? You know, I'm here at school, but I have a different life out of school, and I live my life because I do. You love life. I do. You want to live forever. We all know that at the end of the day, uh, we're going to die, and I don't want to live forever because uh, I guess... It would be boring. Yes, it would be boring. And you know why that is? Um... There's a reason it's boring. I guess because we would make it boring. No, no. The Bible in the book of Romans says that God has subjected the whole of creation to futility, to boredom. Every every piece of happiness you get is transient. It doesn't last. There's so many pleasures of life that are transient. They don't stay. They don't last. We're running around from one thing to the other trying to get rid of this thing called boredom and futility, and it's because of the fact we live in a fallen creation. Do you believe the Bible? I do believe in the Bible, yeah. Well, the Bible says the reason we die is because we've sinned against God. We've violated an eternal law. It says this, the wages of sin is death. God has paid us in death for our sins. In the same way, a judge might pay a criminal who's committed multiple murders, rape three girls and cut their throats, and they say to him, you've earned the electric chair. This is your wages. This is what you deserve. Do you think you deserve death from God? Are you that, that bad that God would give you the death sentence? No. No, obviously not. 
everything the Bible says that it says we all proclaim our own goodness. So I'm going to I'm going to help you see that God is justified in the death sentence. You think you're a good person? Yes. How many lies do you think you've told in your life? I don't know. Too many to count. <laughs> Ever stolen something? Mm, yeah, probably when I was little. When you were younger? Yeah. So you're a lying thief? I mean, I wouldn't call myself something that harsh, but... Well, what would you call me if I told multiple lies and stole? You'd call me a lying thief. It's easy to judge other people, so hard to judge ourselves. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yes. Do you realize what you're doing when you do that? You're taking the holy name of God and using it as a cuss word. It's called blasphemy. It's punishable by death in the Old Testament. Jesus said if you look with lust, you commit adultery in your heart. Have you ever looked with lust? Oh, yeah. So, Kim, I'm not judging you, but you've just told me you're a lying thief, a blasphemer, and an adulterer heart. If God judges you by the Ten Commandments, we've looked at four on Judgment Day, do you think you'd be innocent or guilty? Guilty. Heaven or hell? Probably hell. How does that concern you? Um, at this moment, no, but probably when I'm in front of him, then yes. Yeah, it should concern you. You don't want to lose your life. It's the most precious thing you've got. Now, here is where God did something so we could live forever. Do you know what God did for humanity so we could have everlasting life, even though we're guilty? Mm, he gave up his life and all that. Yeah. And most people know that Jesus died on the cross, but they don't understand this. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. It's that simple. That's why Jesus called out, it is finished just before he died. In other words, the debt has been paid. If you're in court, even though you're guilty, if someone pays your fine, the judge can let you go. He can say, Kim's guilty of a stack of speeding fines, but someone's paid the fines. She's out of here. And he can do that which is legal and just and right. Well, God can legally dismiss your case, forgive your sins, commute your death sentence, let you live forever, all because of what Jesus did on the cross and paying your fine in his life's blood. What you have to do in response is repent of your sins, turn from them, don't play the hypocrite, and put your faith in Jesus, like you trust a parachute. If you're on the edge of a plane 10,000 feet up and you had no fear, best thing I can do for you is hanging out the plane by your ankles so you say, hey, give me the parachute. And what I've tried to do today is hang you out eternity by your ankles, let a little bit of fear into your heart to show you that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God when you're guilty because he's just and holy and we have a multitude of sins. And so what you need to do is think about your eternity, think about your salvation, think about how precious life is and how God offers you everlasting life as a free gift. All you have to do is give up your sins, trust in Jesus, and you'll pass from death to life and you have God's promise on that. The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. He'll never let you down because he's without sin. Does this make sense? Yes, sir. I mean, I understand what you're saying, yes. Yeah, but I want you to say this is just such wonderful news. I can live forever. Death can be nullified in my life. So will you please think about this? I will. Yeah. I mean, you'll seriously think it? Oh, yeah, I will. have a Bible at home? I do. Well, I'll give you some literature. And, Kim, thank you for listening to me. I appreciate your patience. Uh, thank you for giving me some knowledge today. That was from Living Waters, their um, YouTube page. 
and their website at livingwaters.com, so check that out. And that's all I got for the show today. Gotta go out with Yancy Friends and the VI Really. Bye for now. <laughs>